Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. This is part two of a three-part interview with Kevin Price, former MOVE member. Although I do have to note that in the terminology of MOVE, he was what is known as a supporter. So if you talk to MOVE, they'll say, well, he was never a member. The group has brought on a number of supporters, people who might live with the group, work for the group, support the group financially, do their bidding... Um, none of these are technically members, they are supporters. And Kevin Price was a supporter for years, got a really good inside look at the group, and has the kind of intellect and the kind of uh, book smarts, I think, to be able to place what he saw, which which must have been very confusing and off-putting and hard to describe. Uh, but he spent years trying to figure out exactly what he saw and to figure out how to communicate it. So I feel very privileged to be able to talk to him about this controversial group and this very difficult story. John Africa had just won what MOVE refers to as the John Africa versus the system trial. It was when the federal government had John Africa and his co-defendant, Alfonso Robbins Africa, um, on trial for a number of conspiracy, bomb-making, weapons charges that, that upon conviction would have landed them in prison for the, in federal prison for the rest of their lives. Um, John Africa beat those charges um, from the way that MOVE views it miraculously. The fact that he beat the federal government was seen as, um, you know, fulfilling a type of prophecy about who he is and was. And um, he did so through a strategy of not objecting to any single piece of evidence that the federal government put forward, sleeping through most of the trial and then giving what is, you know, even when I read it now, a, a moving and and compelling and emotionally, um, just emotionally moving closing statement um, that had absolutely nothing to do with the charges. But he he managed to, to move the jury in some way with this closing statement. He turned it into a show trial the way that a lot of these people wish to do. Yes. You know, there's kind of like this image of like the Chicago 7 or something, you know, turning the trial into an indictment on the system and a platform for spreading your beliefs. And I think nine times out of 10, that fails miserably. Right. 
But for some reason, John Africa, I think there was something and, you know, he was he he died when I was a toddler. So I never met him. But I've I've probably spent I spent more than hundreds of hours talking to people who knew him about him. And even now, you know, talking to people who have left about him. And I I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of some of the personality traits that were that were kind of coalescing in him to make him so um, compelling for some people. And I think, you know, he, I think he fully believed what he was saying at that time. And I also think that um, he was, you know, it, this gets complicated because I'm not trying to, to like pathologize him, but I think that he was struggling with various mental illnesses. Many people talk about potential schizophrenia. Um, but I think for whatever reason that coupled with a kind of inborn charisma that he had, um, didn't lend itself to people seeing him in the way that the the federal government's case portrayed him. And the fact that he never argued with anything that they said, and instead in his closing testimony was making arguments, you know, indicting a, a, a system that is undoubtedly destroying the earth. Um, if you allow him to make that rhetorical leap from dealing with like real facts on the ground of like, are you burying bombs and guns in former members backyards for safekeeping and like very practical things, then, um, then I can see how it's possible. It's, it's still a little bit hard for me to believe. Like I don't have, and I'm saying this with full, um, with a full, you know, uh, transparency that I'm saying this based on no personal knowledge, but sometimes I look like reading over trial transcripts, think that that jury result must've been the result of intimidation or jury tampering, which would not have been outside of the playbook of what move was doing at that time. They were intimidation and threats were, were a huge part of their wheelhouse. Um, but I don't know that directly in that trial. So moving on from the federal trial. And what year was that again? So that was June of 81. And so at that time, um, Moves headquarters had moved to Osage Avenue, 62nd and Osage in West Philadelphia, which is a very different type of neighborhood than the previous headquarters. Previous headquarters in Palatine Village is is kind of in a bohemian neighborhood that's mixed, um, you know, a lot of white hippies, also a lot of black activists and, and, you know, just people who lived in the neighborhood too, but definitely more of a, a bohemian vibe. 62nd and Osage where they end up moving is like a very um, like middle-class, you know, working uh, black neighborhood that is um, not, really very friendly to move moving into the neighborhood 
and the house is smaller. So in Palatine Village, they had this huge Victorian, uh, the Osage Avenue headquarters, they're moving into a tiny three-story row home. And um, John Africa had always been very private and reclusive to outsiders, but becomes even more so. Um, the organization as a whole isn't doing as much of the public stuff that they were known for doing in the 70s. A lot of the attention um, becomes more internal and the meetings and, you know, with language systems, the way that MOVE uses the word meetings uh, is essentially where one member is put in the hot seat and all of the other members gather around them and point out all of the ways they're not living up to the move principles and it often escalates to severe verbal abuse uh in the from the move rationale in the interest of driving the the move term would be personality they use the word personality to mean everything that is systematic about a person so the idea is to use what would otherwise be considered as abusive in order to basically break the person's ego. So you see this in a lot of uh, Eastern cults as well with the justification being that you're, you're destroying the person's ego and it's going to lead to some sort of enlightenment and move. The idea was like anything. Well, because moves belief cuts to the heart of um, thought itself. Like they believe that, that thought that that basically free choice, the ability to think of two options and make a decision, that is the first violation or sin. And so the idea is by attacking the person's personality, you're going to be able to get them to break that aspect of themselves so that they become wholly instinctual would be the move rationale, right? So at Osage Avenue, that stuff really intensifies to the degree that sometimes these meetings are lasting for more than 24 hours. The person who's having a meeting on them is not sleeping. The people who are giving the meeting to them are um, doing this in shifts. And so it's really intense. You know, when you're dealing with with, uh, alternative lifestyle groups, destructive cults, uh, non-destructive cults, a lot of time the beliefs kind of get glossed over because the people inside really don't know how to explain to people on the outside. But I'm so fascinated, you know, the stuff that's almost like eco-fascism or this John Zerzan type stuff. Um, it's There's so many similarities to him as well as uh, Ted Kaczynski. Like there are... I've read a lot of their stuff and trying to kind of understand how all of this fits together. And I think you know, in some ways moves way of explaining this is not nearly as coherent uh, as like maybe somebody like Kaczynski's critique because move was developing in real time. There's not, there's a lot that isn't internally consistent, but so to, and if I've covered any of this previously, please let me know, but to back up all the way to like, what is the thing driving move? What is the theology that is is justifying all of this? So it actually took me quite a long time to really get it down to a coherent narrative because 
coming around similar to so many other groups like Scientology, you're never given like, this is what it is. It's like years and years of like, Oh, I have a puzzle piece. I have a puzzle piece. And then eventually once you're in so deep, then the, the stuff that would have been harder to accept 10 years previous is said casually. And you're like, wait, what, that's what this is. So um, the fundamental understanding of the human condition within moves belief is that the first well one that that humanity is fundamentally out of step with the natural world right easy enough to to accept that as a foundation that where that started where humanity started to to go off course was the harnessing of fire um and that as soon as humanity or pre, you know, human hominids started taking fire and using it for things like warmth, warmth and cooking food, that they were violating against mama. And mama is the term move uses for God. It's essentially mama nature, but it means it's beyond mama nature it's it's kind of everything that isn't civilization right it's your instincts it's 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 there's a lot there and eventually you learn that john africa and mama and god are all interchangeable words um but so within the move belief once humanity makes the decision to harness fire to do what they want to do rather than what's instinctual, this causes Pangea to split apart. So our timelines are really screwed up here because from my understanding, based on, you know, uh, the, the last I was reading on the science, Pangea likely split somewhere around a hundred million years ago and fire was harnessed somewhere around a million years ago by our, our, pre-homo sapien ancestry but um the in the moves in moves way of seeing the world in the way that john africa explained it so john and you know his cohorts at move really created like a folk religion based on what they were picking up about science and you know misunderstanding about science and philosophy and different things yeah and and they weren't reading books right no and there's a a uh, suspicion of science and education, uh, beyond suspicion, a condemnation of science and education. So, I mean, there is a, there's something ironic about the fact that as you, as I've gone through and looked at like, okay, where did this piece of move come? Where did this come from? Where did this piece come from? Like, you can see that he was picking up things from, from different scientific ideas, other religions and all of these things. But the move belief is that none of this was formed, that, that this man, Vincent Leapart, who takes on the name John Africa, was just born knowing all of these things, that he's like a direct channel to God and is therefore God herself, right? Because they, they use she uh, for, for mama, right? And that's kind of the beauty of having a cult is you're not trying to create a consistent logical worldview. You're trying to create a worldview that you can use to enslave people. So you can pick and choose whatever you want. And it doesn't have to make any sense because when you're working 
nonstop and not sleeping and not eating right, it's going to make sense to you. Right. And there's so much else that's compelling about that, that part of being included in, I mean, I, I do think that for people who feel what it's like to be inside of a cult, there is something that is kind of built into our desire to have a tribe that gets activated. That is so satisfying, but, um, they, their critique, unlike John Zerzan and uh, Ted Kaczynski, do, is not just civilization. It goes way past civilization to, I mean, they're as critical of indigenous people as they are of, you know, modern people with an iPhone, right? Because the, it's like in the move worldview, um, making choices internally any internal dialogue like there's a a, a, uh rain robbins is one of the young women who's recently publicly left move and when we were talking two months ago she brilliantly said moves these aren't her exact words but pretty close moves fundamental critique is against consciousness itself so right the critique is that we shouldn't be thinking at all Right. And you're trying. And when you first hear that, it's like, okay, there's there are similar things like that in Buddhism, but it's nothing like that. Right. It's not like it's within so many of these other traditions that have this um, this aim of reaching some enlightened state where you're not in conflict internally anymore they are often balanced by a rigorous intellectual tradition that kind of keeps people in both worlds at the same time. Um, Move doesn't have any counterbalances to that. They also don't have any physical practices or modalities to help that along. So it's a weird process of using essentially intimidation and humiliation in order to you know, potentially break someone of their own free will. Um, And I'm not, when we talk about like Leap, Vincent Leapart, and I think it's my, my best guess that, you know, the, the, the person who started all of this with him, Don Glassy, um, you know, also kind of co-created a lot of this worldview. I, I don't think that they designed it initially in the attempt to uh, have cult control necessarily, or maybe they weren't conscious con- conscious of the fact that that was part of their own desire. But it's like, I think there's a pattern that plays out where, you know, this Lee Part was in, the man who became John Africa was in his 40s. All of a sudden he has a bunch of, you know, 15 to 25 year olds who are looking to him as if he has the answers to all the world's problems. And there's a, a a pattern that plays out there when that's left unchecked. And I think that, you know, we were just talking about the, the federal trial in 1981 from the time move was founded in 1972 to 1981. um, He had, he had been Vincent Leapart, John Africa had been at the center of this massive feedback loop where he's not getting, you know, 
he's not getting the information that a person would need to self-regulate, right? Like once that cult structure is built around him, there's only one direction he's going. And um, so to go back to like what was actually happening after the federal trial, um, they are isolating in this, this house on Osage Avenue to some degree. I mean, they're still like going out and getting food and doing different things, but it's, it's more concentrated and previous to that, uh, right around the time of the 1978 confrontation that landed the Move 9 in jail for 40 years, um, which we talked about previously, a bunch of the kids of the people who ended up going to prison were sent down to Richmond, Virginia. And there was a, this is in the late 70s, and there was a chapter of Move that didn't call itself Move called the Seed of Wisdom. And that they claimed was an attempt to get the kids out of the city and take them to a farm in Virginia to uh, protect them from confrontation with police and all of that. But what actually happened is they ended up spending some years uh, not really living at the farm, but mostly living in uh, the city in Virginia with primarily two move member women taking care of, you know, more than more than 10 kids and taking care of is a, is a very generous term because on John Africa's guidance on his directive, they were treating the kids like almost, I, I mean, it's, it's really hard to even think about what was happening to the kids in this era, but they were pretty much treating the kids like, uh, like a stray dog that you keep outside and, you know, feed to keep alive, but don't like, don't do that much more for, um, they were, and there was a reason for that. Um, kids are very important in what John Africa was experimenting with and trying to create his utopian vision. He felt like if he could get a hold of a generation of children from birth, that he could get the system training mostly out of them. And this was done by, you know, not feeding them cooked food. Um, so we're talking about newborns who most of whom were nursed but keep in mind a lot of their parents were in prison so for some of them that wasn't possible and fed a diet of almost exclusively raw vegetables and oftentimes even raw meat and the raw meat resulted in a lot of the kids and there i'm not just saying this there are medical records that back all of this up as well as the testimonies of some of the kids who are speaking out now who were in that house, but, um, you know, ended up getting serious parasites from raw meat and having significant health problems. Um, the kids also were often not clothed, which went in line with this idea of, you know, helping them to return to a more natural state that included winters, both in Virginia and Philadelphia, which is significantly colder, um, in Philly, you know, the house, was often not heated, sometimes didn't have electricity, and the kids weren't wearing clothes and also weren't eating food most of the time with any iron in it, right? So 
um, significant malnourishment. And the house down in Richmond where the kids were sent, um, looking at it now, I can see that the kids were actually sent there so that they would not be, um, you know, taken by child protective services and given to their grandparents who were not in move, many of whom, you know, would have would have been happy to care for their grandchildren, but they were taken down to Virginia. The Richmond, Virginia house was eventually raided for the same reasons that Philadelphia houses were raided. Um, this specifically in Richmond around issues of, of child neglect. And um, for one reason or another, and I don't quite understand why uh, the, the kids were put in foster care for a little while, but eventually were uh, temporarily given back to the two move women who uh, unsurprisingly illegally took them back up to Philadelphia and hid them in the Osage Avenue house. So around this time, 1981, right after the federal trial is won, now there are uh, more than 10 kids who were uh, basically missing from Virginia and um, brought to the Osage Avenue house. And we're skipping ahead a couple years because what's happening in Osage Avenue at that time is, is pretty routine and it's mostly internal meetings and things solidifying the, the, um, you know, kind of internal politics of the group. There isn't as much out there's some, but not as much outward stuff happening from 81 to 84. So how is the group at this time, how are they surviving? How are they making money? Like, what's the kind of focus? In Palton Village in the late 70s, one of the prime supposed money makers was uh, this huge car wash that they would run. Um, and in, on Osage Avenue, it was selling watermelon in these huge wooden carts that they would take around the neighborhood. Um there's good reason to believe that there were a lot of illegal ways that that money was being raised and that those operations were covering for for that. Um, they, were, they were also getting donations. I mean, I wasn't around back then, but I know from my experience in the late 90s and all throughout the 2000s up until a few years ago, um, I was giving my wife and I were usually giving you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. And I know that the requirements of donations uh, were even more stringent for members. And um, a lot of the men did have carpentry jobs or auto mechanics jobs. Most of the women stayed home with the kids. Uh, and then they also had a network of supporters that was donating money. And keep in mind, you have, you know, at any given point, uh, you know, uh, upwards of more than 10 adults and more than 10 children living in a tiny row home that they weren't even really paying for because it was owned by the, the sister of the leader of the group. And um, I doubt that she was requiring them to pay. So they didn't have a ton of financial overhead. Um, so that was happening. And then Around 84, things really start to intensify in the Osage Avenue neighborhood. Um, the excuse 
for that intensification was that MOVE had developed, John Africa had developed a strategy of, and this, it's so hard to understand how this could have ever made sense to anyone, but the strategy was to put political pressure, well, it's not even political pressure, to terrorize the Osage Avenue neighborhood through sometimes physical threats, sometimes, you know, having a bullhorn running 24 hours a day, including at Christmas, um, through fortifying the house and doing a number of different things that somehow that was going to pressure these working class to middle class neighbors without a, and, you know, in a black neighborhood um, to pressure city hall to free the move nine who had gone to prison in 1978. And that was, how MOVE explained their actions at the time. Um, so things were incredibly intense between MOVE and the Osage Avenue neighbors. And enough so that that neighbors were regularly going to City Hall to complain and saying something needs to be done about this. Now, the way that MOVE always frames this is you know, I've heard Ramon Africa say a thousand times, since when did the U.S. government give a damn about the complaints of black neighbors? Which is a good point if you don't understand what was actually happening there. So it's not only is there complete, uh, you know, disruption in the neighborhood and a whole city block that that feels unsafe at home sometimes but it was you know letters threatening political figures being sent um all sorts of threats being made of things that would happen if the move nine weren't released can you give me a snapshot of where move is on may 13th 1985 sure so By May 13th of 1985, uh, John Africa has been increasingly reclusive and saying things for some time that are hinting at a kind of culminating event. Um, In my opinion, based on a lot of primary source documents and conversations, um, he had kind of his strategy was coming to a close. So I believe that John Africa was in a state of mind where he had taken the people that he had trained as far as he could take them. And he was ready for something big to happen that he thought had the potential to shift the history of humanity forever Um, and that is the kind of frame of mind he was in. And as that trickles down to the rest of the organization, I would say this is like the apocalyptic phase of move. If the city does try to come in here and get you out, what are you going to do? Or do what's necessary, man. What is that? But first understand why he's coming in here. What are you going to do? All right. We're going to do what's necessary. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. What is that? Our only defense. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. You aren't telling me anything. You're just saying the strategy of John Africa. I wouldn't tell my strategy to you. (laughs) 
I've just been advised that we have new videotape of uh, the episode that apparently ended, we think ended, the uh, move situation tonight, the dropping of an incendiary device. And let's take a careful look at this 5.27 p.m. State Police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. As you can see, a very dramatic explosion that occurs 30 seconds and really rips into the move compound. There you see the bunker, which soon will go up in flames. And that was the explosion close up. Now, if there's anybody there standing there, it's obvious they couldn't survive that explosion. Many people know that a bomb was dropped on a row home in Philadelphia and that 11 people were killed. And my understanding of what actually happened that day is that John Africa intended for everyone to die in the house that day. And that the reason that he intended this is that his, I don't know if he truly believed this at the time or if he needed a way out because he had nowhere further to go with his strategy. Um, but my understanding is that he believed that if he could, and this is a quote from his guidelines, from his writing, if he could force the system to do openly what they always do behind closed doors, that's the end of the part that's his quote, that he could cause a global revolution that would then, even though he and the people in the house would be deceased, the move members in prison and the other move members who weren't in the house would be able to pick up that momentum and be a vanguard to lead a global revolution that would not only overthrow every government on the face of the earth, but move would actually be looked as a vanguard to take humanity back to a state from before civilization. And that's a, a very um, hard thing for people to comprehend that that is what the thinking actually was within the house. Um, but that is my understanding of why what happened on May 13th happened. Now, the fact that the police were willing and able to do what they did um, just played into Move's strategy. But I believe firmly that John Africa intended for every single person in that house to die on that day. And that Ramona Africa and Bertie Africa, who was the only child to survive, um, actually did that on their own will to survive, but not based on the strategy. So once the smoke dissipates and the dust settles what is left after that confrontation is six adults and five children dead in that house um the children i, I try and name them just to, because they've been so obscured their 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 actual lived experience has been so obscured so delicia katricia zanetta phil and tomaso um, I conceive of them as prisoners in that house. And um, the way that I understand those events, 
Vincent Leapart, John Africa was as guilty of murdering those children as the officials who ended up dropping the bomb, which 100% in my view still has to be absolutely condemned. And the police definitely um, did, you know, abhorrent things on that day. But unless you understand how cults function and how frequently this type of thinking becomes the end game of a cult. Um, You can't really understand how that would have been the result. And that's why I feel so passionate about trying to introduce such, such an uncomfortable idea into the conversation. Sure. And, you know, reminds me so much of Waco in, in the sense that there was just nobody there. Like as far as the main actors, the cops, the cult leader, like there weren't any good guys just because the police committed this horrible crime and, and caused the uh, death of so many innocent people. Doesn't mean that John Africa wasn't also a son of a bitch, you know? Yeah. And, and for me, everything with this has come down to, to trying to not every, but a large part of this for me is about trying to properly honor the the lives and memories of those kids. And it's not just the kids who are in the house. Some of the women in the house, you know, I, I think were likely prisoners as well. And, you know, I have really complicated feelings about a lot of the members and I, I understand like one of my fears in talking about all of this is it's really easy to stigmatize people who end up in, in cults and to kind of like look at them as the other. And I fully understand how the people, the adults who ended up in that house ended up in that position. Right. And I have a lot of empathy for understanding what that transformation of their life was like. And like, I don't like, I think that Vincent Leapart, John Africa was really, really had gone down a path that had, that led him to do things that, that in my view were evil. Right. Um, But I still, not so much with him because for a leader, that's a different thing, but it's like, I try really hard to like keep the good things about the adults that I know in my head to understand, like there was still a part of each of those people that didn't want to be in that house. There was still a part of each of those people that had conflict and felt um, like they wanted to have a real conversation with their parents or their sister, or like, at least from my experience of being in that group, there's always, and I was never in a situation of that intensity, right? Where you're being asked to sacrifice something as big as your life. And I can imagine that most of them were living out these different people inside of them all at the same time. And it's like, I just try and be sensitive to that because I think that's a big part of disentangling all of this is understanding that 
it's possible. I, I, I think any person could wind up in a situation similar to that if they encounter the group at a specific time in their life and the right needs are being filled by the group at that time. And um, yeah, part of this for me in trying to, to tell as much of the truth as I understand it is just like hoping that this move, uh, the, 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 the history of move is not something for people to look at and be like, Oh, look at this weird group that believed all this weird stuff because that's not the way I view it. It's like, let's look at this and understand how did this happen? Oh, there's this aspect that's still really compelling. Um, why is that compelling? What drives people to dedicate themselves in the same way? Not to like point a finger, but to, to, to try and actually have understanding so that people are less likely to like feel like they don't have a way out. So that was part two of my three-part interview with Kevin Price, former supporter of MOVE, which, as we all know by now, is MOVE Talk for member, basically. It's a tier of membership. Be sure to check out my podcast, Failed State Update, also my Substack newsletter, also called Failed State Update. You can check that out at lennyflatley.substack.com. And even more important than that, check out a podcast called Murder at Ryan's Run. It's by Beth McNamara and her team. And they're investigating a, a cold case, a uh, murder of a former MOVE member. There are very good reasons to believe that MOVE was responsible. But more than a, a true crime podcast, which, you know, as a true crime po- podcast, it's fascinating. Even more so, it is an expose of Move. It's a platform for a number of ex-members telling their story and communicating just why this supposed radical group is actually a destructive cult. And definitely, definitely, definitely check out Kevin's blog, Leaving Move. It provides a forum for him and lots of other ex-members to tell their stories, so I can't recommend either of those things highly enough, and they are both linked to in the show notes, so be sure to check that out.